jump on flowers, like if I wanted to eat them. And I also kind of understand violin music, like if there were actually words. Now I know I'm turning into a bug. Uh, you know how I know? Because I went to the doctor, and they tested my blood, and I had a little of insect DNA, a cricket to be exact. They'll squish me. Well, I don't know what people do to bugs. I studied crickets last night, and that they only live for one year. One year. Who would want to live that long? Not me. Not me at all. I don't know. How did I become an insect? How am I becoming an insect? What? I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't really... Why am I turning into a bug? That's all I'm asking right now. I am gonna convert into a moth. A moth. If I convert into a moth, I'm not gonna be able to live with you. Please, mommy. I have to do this. And I'm sorry if I have to leave because I am bright yellow. This is Journeys in Podcasting, threading the learning community within and beyond. The design of the podcast is to review the immediate and local case-based studies on our campus, leveraging horizontal and vertical dialogue, then research beyond. The opening clips were from student fantasy narratives. We lifted elements of the movie The Fly for students to step beyond their egos. After traveling through a transporter, they branded the Shukani Duki, the slow cross genetic mutation began. Insect and human. Students recorded their change in perception through private speech with iPads, capturing an emotional expression as they processed their readings on insects. Without realizing it, we were leveraging the mechanics of gamification by allowing students to become the protagonist of their own appropriated narrative. Jane McGonigal explains how she activated the same mechanics in her recovery from a cerebral concussion. It started two years ago when I hit my head and got a concussion. Now the concussion didn't heal properly and after 30 days, I was left with symptoms like nonstop headaches, nausea, vertigo, memory loss, mental fog. My doctor told me that in order to heal my brain, I had to rest it. So I had to avoid everything that triggered my symptoms. For me, that meant no reading, no writing, no video games, no work or email, no running, no alcohol, no caffeine. In other words, and I think you see where this is going, no reason to live. Of course, it's meant to be funny, but in all seriousness, suicidal ideation is quite common with traumatic brain injuries. It happens to one in three, and it happened to me. My brain started telling me, Jane, you want to die. It said, you're never going to get better. It said, the pain will never end. And these voices became so persistent and so persuasive that I started to legitimately fear for my life. Which is the time that I said to myself after 34 days, and I will never forget this moment, I said, I am either going to kill myself 
or I'm gonna turn this into a game. Now, why a game? Well, I knew from researching the psychology of games for more than a decade that when we play a game, and this is in the scientific literature, we tackle tough challenges with more creativity, more determination, more optimism, and we're more likely to reach out to others for help. And I wanted to bring these gamer traits to my real life challenge. So I created a role-playing recovery game called Jane the Concussion Slayer. Now, this became my new secret identity. And the first thing I did as a Slayer was call my twin sister, I have an identical twin sister named Kelly, and tell her, I'm playing a game to heal my brain, and I want you to play with me. This was an easier way to ask for help. She became my first ally in the game. My husband, Kiyosh, joined next. And together, we identified and battled the bad guys. Now, this was anything that could trigger my symptoms and therefore slow down the healing process, things like bright lights and crowded spaces. We also collected and activated power-ups. This was anything I could do on even my worst day to feel just a little bit good, just a little bit productive. Things like cuddling my dog for 10 minutes or getting out of bed and walking around the block just once. Now the game was that simple. Adopt a secret identity, recruit your allies, battle the bad guys, activate the power-ups. But even with a game so simple, within just a couple days of starting to play, that fog of depression and anxiety went away. It just vanished. It, it felt like a miracle. Now, it wasn't a miracle cure for the headaches or the cognitive symptoms. That lasted for more than a year, and it was the hardest year of my life by far. But even when I still had the symptoms, even while I was still in pain, I stopped suffering. Now, what happened next with the game surprised me. I put up some blog posts and videos online explaining how to play, but not everybody has a concussion, obviously. Not everyone wants to be the slayer, so I renamed the game Super Better. And soon I started hearing from people all over the world who were adopting their own secret identity, recruiting their own allies, and they were getting super better, facing challenges like cancer and chronic pain, depression and Crohn's disease. Even people were playing it for terminal diagnoses, like ALS. And I could tell from their messages and their videos that the game was helping them in the same ways that it helped me. They talked about feeling stronger and braver. They talked about feeling better understood by their friends and family. And they even talked about feeling happier, even though they were in pain, even though they were tackling the toughest challenge of their lives. Now, at the time, I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? I mean, how could a game so trivial intervene so powerfully in such serious and, in some cases, life and death circumstances? I mean, if it hadn't worked for me, there's no way I would have believed it was possible. Well, it turns out there's some science here, too. Some people get stronger and happier after a traumatic event. And that's what was happening to us. The game was helping us experience what scientists call post-traumatic growth, which is not something we usually hear about. We usually hear about post-traumatic stress disorder, but scientists now know that a traumatic event doesn't doom us to suffer indefinitely. Instead, we can use it as a springboard to unleash our best qualities and lead happier lives. Here are the top five things that people with post-traumatic growth say. My priorities have changed. I'm not afraid to do what makes me happy. I feel closer to my friends and family. I understand myself better. I know who I really am now. I have a new sense of meaning and purpose in my life. 
I'm better able to focus on my goals and dreams. Now, does this sound familiar? It should, because the top five traits of post-traumatic growth are essentially the direct opposite of the top five regrets of the dying. Now, this is interesting, right? It seems that somehow a traumatic event can unlock our ability to lead a life with fewer regrets. But how does it work? How do you get from trauma to growth? Or better yet, is there a way to get all the benefits of post-traumatic growth without the trauma, without having to hit your head in the first place? The day before the ISTE conference in Philadelphia, Steve Hargadon facilitates HackEd and Unconference, a great meeting of the voices. I found myself in a circle discussing gamification with Michael Matera, Chris Aviles, Marianne Maelstrom, Steve Isaacs, Paul Darvasi, and one of the greatest connectors, Peggy Sheehy. If you haven't had the experience of an Unconference, this is the best form of rapid idea exchange, the highlight of ISTE. Here's Michael Matera introducing themes of gamification. So in my class, uh, using gamification, that idea where you're teasing out the most motivational aspects of games, you're not playing games, you're taking what's motivational of them and applying them to a non-game setting like your classroom. Some of the ways I tease that out is with a pretty rich theme, so my, my students experience the theme right off the bat when they come into my class. I teach world history, and my theme is pretty much stolen from Game of Thrones. So the idea is the king's dead, and each of my world history periods are a house that are vying to sort of become the power, the king. Uh, and the whole system is based around collaboration. Like, I really want my students to work together, which I think for a lot of gamification, a lot of people worry about the competition aspect. While that is built into my game, uh, really a huge component of it is... Uh, the collaborative experience because in the classroom, in their period, they're actually all working together uh, on various tasks, quests, missions, challenges, whatever you want to frame it as. So in those, in those tasks and those challenges, do you leverage that? Like, do you prompt it or does it happen on a more natural way? Like, how does the collaboration come to be? Good question. I would have to say, in all honesty, it's a bit of both, right? So like at the beginning of the year, they're not used to that experience right off the bat. So some of it is my prompting. Uh, sometimes I have to lead them a little bit down that path, but kind of like a slide, right? Like once they get going, they just sort of do it themselves. So one of the examples might be uh, for, uh, <laughs> for one of my missions they had to go on. I had them, they had to make the flip videos for class. And I teach sixth grade. So many of these kids had never seen a flip video or even knew what it was. And I hadn't used Flip yet in my class. They hadn't experienced it for me either. And I played this epic music, right? And they come in and they're like, what's going on, right? And I, and I said, all right, your guilds, which is my word for their, their teams or their groups, I said, your guild's going to be challenged here. You're gonna, you're gonna, it's going to test the strength of your guild. Your guild has two, to two days in class to make a flipped, a flipped lesson. And, I, and then that was it. Like, mic drop, boom. I didn't tell them anything else. I said, like, you won't know. We're not going to go down to the lab. I'm not going to teach you what software to use. You have two class days to make it happen. And then I assigned the sections of readings that they were going to cover. And collaboration at first was confusing. They were like, they didn't know what to do. And there was a minute of sort of panic. But after the minute of panic, 
leaders arose and said, okay, well, let's first like read the section. Hey, you, Jimmy, why don't you start Googling what what a flipped lesson is? And then all of a sudden they see this world of flipped lessons, right? They start watching YouTubes of flipped lessons and kids start documenting like what they liked in flipped lessons. Oh, this guy gave an intro. This guy gave like a heads up for what, right? And they start documenting this. These are sixth graders making, in my view, the right choices without me sort of lecturing about the right choices. They then started to create their script, they started to make their scripts, and then another good example of like organic collaboration, kids, kids came to me, because they're still used to like the teacher being the center, and said, Mr. Mr. Matera, can I ask Jenna in this other group to go read our slides, because she's really good, you know, she's really good at it. And I was like, so you want, you want, you're asking me if she can peer edit your work. <laughs> like, sure, sure. You can, I'll, I'll do you a favor. Jenna can do that this time. Right? So, but it's a, to me, that's a great example of where students do ultimately make the right choice. Learning is the most natural act. And sometimes we sort of gum it up as teachers and I think overcomplicate it. Uh, and I was there, obviously, as a support to all these groups when, like, one group couldn't figure out an app to use. We had iPads, you know. So what I did is, instead of lecturing the whole class on what app to use, some kids could organically find that, and they felt good about that. They, like, found an app, and they felt proud that they found the app. Another group couldn't, and so I went up to one of the kids and just kind of whispered in his ear, like, why don't you just check out, explain everything. I didn't tell him what it was, so then what did he do? He Googled explain everything, and he... And then all of a sudden, I'm halfway across the classroom because I walked away after I whispered that to him. And he's like, this is awesome. This is what we could do. And then he starts telling his kid, his group, this is what we got to do. And now he's proud of, like, owning that knowledge and doing it. Um, so without any, any tech class or any special direct collaborative learning lessons or techniques, they just sort of came up with a lot of this stuff on their own. Yeah. And this, this whole project didn't have a single rubric. Didn't, it really gave them a mission, I gave them a goal, gave them an endpoint, and then I gave them some support if needed. It wasn't like I didn't front load anything, I didn't assume like, well you guys don't know this stuff so I'm going to explain it to your, to your board. Um, and, and I told them that they had to work in their groups. And we, we talked for a little bit about effective group practices and I, I always, I'm big on telling them that it's about playing to your strengths as opposed to like this issue of fairness like as sixth graders they're always worried about fairness yeah and so I try to like make the analogy like a baseball team doesn't pay that guy a hundred million dollars because he's average at everything they pay him a hundred million dollars because he's a good pitcher so if you have somebody on your team that's really good at technology maybe they're the ones that like do a lot of work on the technology but they don't do as much work on one of the other components yeah, I mean, that seems like a, a true, more natural collaborative model. What do you put in place as far as along the way, check-ins, uh, peer critiques, whole class critiques, any, any insights there? I think that always depends on the project, right? So a short project, I have very little check-ins, and it's more observational, like I'm just walking around and what I see and then what I comment back. If I have a long-scale pro or a large project that's go ongoing, um, I do check-ins with the students where they conference with me so using the flip model I'm able to get a lot of my instruction happening outside of class and then I can use a lot of class time for the project so while everyone's engaged doing their project I also have time to call each student over or each group over and conference with them mm. and what I have really found this year I did a lot of group conferencing 
And that really is cool, and I really suggest a lot of people try it. Instead of conferencing that with that one kid and saying, how's it going? It's awesome to really dedicate like 15 minutes to your class, because it's a group now. Mm. Let's spend 15 minutes just talking to these five students about their group and their group project and where it's going and what's the timeline on it and, and who's done what, what needs to get done. What do you what do you think works so well about using the game model, especially like this fantasy element of it? Why, why do you think that's so effective? Uh, I think that games are what games are the language of this generation, and so this this idea, like we all like to go to the movies, we all like to read a good book, right? And the things that are motivational for us to do those is a little bit of escapism, a little bit of you want to be connected, at least for my sixth graders. They want to be doing something bigger than just sixth grade world history homework, right? They want to be connected in a larger sense. And I think that that storyline is that connection. Like for my sixth graders, they feel like they're accomplishing the world, right? Like they're they're solving a problem. but really, they're playing, they're playing this game of, of school that has been themed well and, and really pushes those students to different directions. Um, I like to think that it pushes them to be the best version of themselves. Like it, The game model lends itself to exploration more than the school model does. Maybe that's the best way to sum it up. Kind of like a safe failing space where if you fail in the game... It's no big deal. It's just a game. Yeah, like well, not not only that, and totally. It's just a game, but but I'll, I would even go one step further. In the game, failure is learning, right? So like, if you load the game up and you 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 walk a little bit and you see a giant like fissure in the ground, and you're like, well, I'm gonna try to jump across it, and your guy falls, you don't say like, oh, I failed. What you actually say is, I learned that my character can't jump that far. Like in this game, my mm-hmm. character is limited by distance of how far he can jump. You don't say I failed. You just load it back up. And now you come to that same thing and you turn left and you get mauled by a bear. <laughs> and now you learn, oh, don't turn left. Don't turn left. <laughs> I, I can't, my character can't fight a bear. Turn right and you find a bridge. Okay, right? And you've now gotten success on that third try. But again, you didn't really see those others as failure. You saw those others as, as building blocks to your learning. So let's go negative. What's the worst like what's the worst failure that you've had as far as setting up games? Like, what have you seen not working? Good question. Um, I think, for me, where gamification breaks down or fails in teachers' classes is when they're not invested. Um, ultimately, you you need to bring that magic. Um, Pixar has 22 rules of storytelling. And one of their rules is you can't just write, be cool, right? You don't introduce Indiana Jones and just it doesn't just say it across the screen, this guy's cool. They had to write the script that made Indiana Jones cool. Like, we had to understand he's cool for lots of reasons, that he's a tough guy, he takes risks, you see him with the lasso and the hat, and right? Um, same thing, you can't just say, I'm gamifying my class, and I'm going to apply some badges to it, and now students are going to learn more. Right? You have to bring some of the magic. So uh, a good classroom example of that is like when I give a badge out, when I give a student a badge or award a badge or whatever you want to say, 
I have to make it a big deal. I mean, I have to say, like, this is, this is awesome project you did. This is awesome work, right? Usually praise the process, not the student, for example. And then that badge isn't so much a reward to the student as, again, it is recognition of the process that the student did. Mm. So I think the greatest failure is when we just reduce it to praising the student, right? When it is merely extrinsic motivation or when teachers don't actually bring the magic themselves. You gotta be invested, like anything else, right, in education. Project-based learning where you don't really come up with a good project or a connected project mm. doesn't work either. So, in the game-based model, I mean, I see a lot of teacher prompting, but what, what do you see as like the, the best examples of, you know, totally student-prompted design or students driving their own learning? Um, you know, I see, I see it working kind of within modules and challenges and quests, but where do they? Where do you see it like really taking off? Where the kids actually design the game, or the makers, or the dungeon masters of the game? Um, my favorite thing for sort of personalized learning and gamification coming together is that kind of what you're yeah. you're talking about. Um, this year in my game, for example, uh, I added something called the adventure path in each unit. The adventure path pushed students in a different way, but it was optional. They could opt in on it. But that was probably the greatest example of differentiation I've ever had in my class, where I actually designed two very different things. We're not just talking about you can choose Project A or Project B. For some of the units, it was an entirely different, almost, curriculum that these students were doing and experiencing. But the cool thing I tried to attach it to was some end product that they that really pushes them. So, for example, one of my units, the, the adventure path was that they had to do a TED Talk. So for sixth graders to memorize world history names and people, right, be recorded by three cameras, like, have, be mic'd up, like, the intensity was there. And these students did it, right? And then the cool thing is, at the end of the process, when you hear those students say, I'm so glad I chose to push myself. And they're not talking about badges. Like if you hear my students in that moment, they're not talking about badges. They're talking about the learning. They're just like, I'm so glad I pushed myself. I didn't think I was this good of a public speaker. I didn't think I could do it. And now I can. That changes that student's perception of what's possible. And to me, that is priceless. James Paul G. wrote the book, What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy. Read through the teacher's lens, this is a blueprint for education reform, a near-perfect alignment with MI theory, universal design learning, transmedia, multimodal cognition, growth mindset, and drivers of student motivation. Ivory League was fascinated by this cultural phenomena that people are paying for a long and hard and difficult thing that has to be successful in teaching them to play it because it'll go broke if it doesn't. And when I finally caught on to, you know, the theory of learning behind video games, which I think is quite different than how we learned in school, uh, it became, a, to me, a life-enhancing experience. Take uh, real-time strategy games, which are the most complex video games. A game like Rise of Nations has over 350 commands, essentially hundreds of variables interacting. You play it for hours, you run civilizations. I mean, it's just, it's just more complex than what any kid would 
you see in school. We have evolved an almost perfect way to teach these incredibly complex games. So there are kids addicted to civilization. I mean, and yet civilization, I, I defy any adult to go play civilization and they will usually give up in 25 minutes. So let's talk about assessment because assessment and testing is what drives our current school system. If you're not happy with how schools teach today, they teach that way because of the tests we have. So we've come to realize we're not going to change the paradigm of schooling and get deeper learning in it, learning for problem solving and innovation unless we change the tests and change the assessment because they drive the system. Now here's a little thought experiment about assessment for anybody who's a gamer. Uh, we take it as completely natural that uh, you would be in an algebra class for 12 weeks and then I would give you a test on algebra, maybe one designed in some other state to see whether you learned any algebra. We take that as natural, we do it every day. So let's say a kid plays Halo on hard and you know he plays 30, 40 hours and he, and he finishes Halo, would you be tempted to give him a Halo test? No, not at all. You'd say the game already tested him. So let's think, why is it that we're not tempted to give him a halo test, but we are tempted to give that algebra test and use that as the judgment? Well, it's because you actually trust the design and learning of halo better than you trust the design and learning of that algebra class. And I think that's where we're going. We're going to be able to create learning that is so immersive, so deep, so rich in information about the development of people in that learning space that the idea that we let some tests made in a different state trump what happens uh, outside of that learning will become primitive. We will see it as a very primitive thing. What I'm pushing is really not digital media, first and foremost. It's what I call situated and embodied learning. And what I mean by that is being able to solve problems with what you know, not just know a bunch of inert facts, but be able to use facts and information as tools for problem solving in specific contexts, being able to do stuff. Now, if you think about this, this is actually returned to an earlier age because in the 18th and 19th century, most scientists were amateurs in the sense they didn't have credentials, they didn't work for universities. Darwin never worked for the university. Um, he was, you know, uh, could take care of himself and he did his science. And, and people wrote letters. I mean, instead of journal articles, they wrote letters to each other and they did science together and they helped each other and they mentored each other. Schools in America, for the first time in history, have genuine competition. And that's because companies, large and small, are selling 24-7 learning customized to you and your learning style uh, outside of school. And you can learn didactically or in, in performance-based, any way you want. It's customized to you. Uh, some people are doing it for profit. Uh, so we have a, a curriculum and a school system out of school now. And it's in community centers, it's in libraries, it's in privileged homes. And it's based in this digital learning and also in the situated, contextualized, problem-solving learning. Learning where you can do and articulate your knowledge. And uh, it's making some of our skill and drill schools look bad. That uh, system is going to put pressure on schools. And it is, it is already operating by deeper forms of assessment that are built, you know, where the assessment is integrated with the learning, where it's based on copious information, and where it's used to customize the learning back to you, as well as to give information across all the stakeholders so they can resource the learner. It's a new phenomena where we really have two school systems. We have a school system for the 21st century in popular culture where people are thinking about complex systems and learn, you know, kids are producing their own knowledge, whether it's about the weather or robotics or machinima or digital media. Uh, and uh, then we have a school system that's basically giving you the basics of numeracy and literacy. 
and uh, that pressure, I think, will bring about real change. Chris Avilas blogs as Teched Up Teacher. Here he is at ISTE presenting on how gamification changes learning environment. Just afterward, Chris interviews Kevin Werbach, a proponent of the private sector investing in games for education. So I always like to start with a definition because it's kind of new, I guess, to a lot of people. And so game-based learning is using games in the classroom to teach uh, or assess, right? That, that would be the definition I give. Um, and so at my school, what I have, uh, and I just transitioned there about six months ago, and what I have developed, what I've been beta testing for the six months I've been there, and I'm going to roll out wholeheartedly in September, um, is an innovation lab that has three strands. And so one is Minecraft, uh, the other is a more pure coding, uh, and then the other one is kind of like an engineering theme. And I'm going to try to get those strands to blend together because what I love about Minecraft is what it lets me do that has nothing necessarily maybe to do with playing the game, if that makes sense. So here maybe is a discussion on game-based learning that doesn't necessarily involve the game so much, and maybe that'll make sense in a few minutes. Um, and so I'll start a little bit with my background is, you know, uh, I just turned 31. Um, I love video games. I've never grown up in a world without the internet. I've never grown up in a world without games. And so I know that kids are passionate just like I am about playing. And so I want to help them, you know, discover that passion and apply it to some of the other things that they're learning. So bringing Minecraft into my classroom is important because my kids love it. And I think it's even more important to me because I hate it. I don't like it. It's not the game I would play in my free time. Building and exploring is not really my thing when it comes to, you know, my leisure, my leisurely activities. But I think I owe it to my kids to find ways to take what they're, you know, doing at home and bringing it into class and finding some fun ways to play with it. And so taking Minecraft, you know, we could build things in Minecraft and that's good and there will be some of that. But what I'm really impressed with uh, Minecraft is what it allows me to do maybe outside the game a little bit. And so some of the things uh, I'm really excited about um, is, uh, you know, doing some 3D des design using a program called Tinkercad, which has the ability to create a file that you import directly into Minecraft. So kids can build things in Tinkercad, and then they can import it into Minecraft, and what they just built now appears in the game that they've made. Mm. Um, inversely, there's a program called Mindways, which allows kids to take what they have built in Minecraft and export it into a 3D uh, rendering, you know, device or even print. Um, and there's even another great program called Overviewer, which actually will take a Minecraft world and turn it into a Google map. So one thing we're doing is we are going to build our town in Minecraft, we're going to export it as a Google map, and we're going to place the pin markers on historical points of interest and stuff like that. And so a lot of that stuff has very little to do with actually playing the game, but using it as a tool to build. So we have ways to build outside of Minecraft, bring it in. We have ways to build inside of Minecraft, bring it out. Um, and so I think that's going to be, I think, an entryway to maybe doing some things like cartography, um, doing some things like math. Uh, I forget what the actual equation is. Somebody gave it to me once, and as I'm still teaching myself, I want to double-check it, but I believe like one block is equivalent to three feet. So if we get all the miles of my town, well, that kind of talks about how many blocks you know, needs to be in the map. Or if, I, if we're going to build our school and we measure our school to be, you know, 
300 feet wide, let's say, when we know how that translates into how many blocks. So there's some of your math mm. um, and equations and, and stuff like that. So that part's really exciting to me, and, and that's the kind of the engineering and design strand using Minecraft as maybe the catalyst. Um, so, you know, I, I, I see all the math, and I, I see, all, you know, all the great kind of getting them to actually be constructors of, of these worlds and things. What do you see happening as far as um, collaborative learning skills? Do you wedge those things? Do you leverage them? Do they happen naturally? Like, what is all this learning going on around the game? Does that make sense? So, um, I'm of the opinion that we need to move away from a fact-based curriculum. Um, I find many of my peers, and even myself sometimes, uh, teaching and sometimes even lecturing on things that can be Googled. And so what I love about these little projects uh, in this lab is it's going to give kids the ability um, to develop what I think is more important than a fact-based maybe curriculum is more of a skill-based curriculum. And so if I take a team of kids who really want to make their town in Minecraft, well, they can share that map. And they have to coordinate who's building what and where, and they have to plan out who's going to measure what. So a lot of those skills that they need to use to develop the final product, to me, is almost more important than the actual final product. You know, when I see kids working together and planning and executing that plan uh, and then coming up with a successful you know, finished product, and, and even if it takes a couple times to get that successful finished product, you know, fail and iterate, that didn't work this time, let's try it differently, we don't like this, you know, one thing I'm always impressed with people uh, who are passionate about Minecraft is they'll build something, and they have no issue knocking it down to build something better, and to me, I, I admire that because I don't know if I'm that person, I, I think I would get frustrated, which maybe is why Minecraft isn't something I would play in my free time. It's, it's not maybe a personality fit, but the kids who are engaged by that, just the amount of teamwork and skill building that it takes to, you know, I, I don't think it's a simple task to, you know, map out your entire town, you know, on an accurate scale and then label the points of interest with, you know, history facts or whatever it may be. Um, I see a lot of soft skills being developed, you know, even, you know, you look at your... Uh, your writing, having to write the facts, having to write them so that they're digestible to people, having to, you know, code the little map pins um, in Python. So I, I see a lot of those tangential learning opportunities by allowing a kid to work on a project like that. Hmm. A, a few, a little while ago in the in the circle, in the Hackhead circle, I heard you say something that was pretty provocative, and it was that the, the learning revolution is coming and it's going to be exponential. I, we just spoke with Matt Richards a few weeks ago of the Mine Lab in, in, uh, in Wellington, New Zealand, and he kind of said the same thing. He said, I asked him what the future of school was, and he said no balls, that, that schools won't even exist the way that they exist today. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so, so we'll do a little prediction. You know, it's always fun to kind of predict, you know, five, ten years what it's going to look like. So I think there's going to be a learning revolution partly because college, especially in the United States, is an unsustainable business model. These kids are being shackled with debt, and I think that we're going to see, like, the housing bubble in the United States, I think we're going to see a college bubble burst where, you know, right now banks are giving loans to kids who are going to colleges that they're not ready for in some instances or majoring in things that might not be as employable as other things. 
Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, this America dream of, you know, doing what you want and following your passion. But what happens when your passion doesn't align with jobs? So I think we're going to start to see some pushback at the highest levels because kids are no longer going to be willingly crippling their you know, their early 20s and I mean, even in the early 30s uh, with crippling debt. And so I think that's going to force people to start to think about, well, what does learning even entail? And, and I know we're talking about game-based learning, but I also think that's where kind of like this gamification, badges, micro-credential things is going to happen. Because right now I can go take, you know, a Harvard economics class online, just like if I was actually at Harvard, and I can get a certificate or a micro-credential out of that. At what point does that count as you know, and, and as an artifact of my learning without having to, you know, uh, the forty-five, fifty thousand $50,000 price tag. And so I think the learning revolution is going to be wallless. I think it's going to be, um, I, I think people are going to start to realize that they don't, you know, anybody can be an expert. Uh, you know, I was raised in a house, uh, I was never really taught some of the skills I wish I was. I, I'm not really great at swinging a hammer. I don't really know how to fix things. I wish I did. Uh, I mean, I'm good with, you know, that stuff on the computer. But for me, I think, uh, you know, anytime anything breaks, hot water heater, toilet, car, I immediately go to YouTube and internet forums and I watch videos and reach out to people who walk me through how to fix stuff. And so it's this idea that the teacher is the vessel of knowledge isn't really a thing anymore. Google is now the smartest person in the classroom and anybody can be an expert. And so this idea that you have to learn, you know, people used to go to the schoolhouse because the teacher had all the facts and had all the books and there was nowhere else to get this information. That's not the case anymore. We actually have information overload. There's too much information. Now, just to counter that and play devil's advocate sure. a little bit, um, the, this idea of learning as a social environment and the need to be in a school with other kids where you're constructing knowledge together socially in groups and then to take that to a higher level into upper education and say that those people aren't paying for that knowledge when they go to the Ivy League schools, when they pay for these you know, incredible price tag educations, they're paying for that community. They're paying for the access of sitting next to those people, of being friends with them, of eating in the dining hall with them, and making those you know, relationships and those threads that will then carry them later in life. I 100% agree because I don't think because the classroom is wallless and we're micro-credentialing and we're changing, I don't think learning is ever going to be alone. I don't, I don't think it's always going to be a social you know, endeavor. I just think the nature of how that happens is different. You know, for instance, with technology, we can now have asynchronous relationships. I could drop you an email, leave you a message, and you get back to me on your time. I leave a message on a forum, and I wait for somebody to respond. So there's always going to be that social aspect, but I think it's just going to kind of take on a different... I don't want to say disconnected because we're still having those relationships, but I think there's always going to be... It'll be threaded differently. It'll be, it, it, it'll, it'll be threaded like a forum. It'll, it'll have threads, you know. Mm -hmm. you, you go on, you know, I'm a huge Reddit fan. You go on Reddit and you read some comments. You come back later, you read some more comments, and, and the best comments float to the top, and people build relationships and have the ability to personal message each other if you agree or want to continue the conversation elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you look at what we just did here, this hacked education conference, this could have happened in anywhere in the world. This could happen totally online. 
You know what I mean? The idea of us just getting together for an hour and talking about something we're passionate about and comparing best practices and having a bit of a debate, you know, because the one thing I was even most impressed with the, the circle of game-based learning that we had is we had some experts in there. We had some beginners in there. We had some intermediates in there. And even especially among, you know, everybody learning and talking and comparing, I also was happy that that people who are implementing the experts, I know you just talked to Mike, you know, who's an absolute rock star, um, Mike and I and Steve Isaacs was there and stuff like that. If you put us in a room together, we would all probably disagree on even what gamification is and what it looks like. But we've developed systems that work for our kids, mm. you know. And, and you know, those guys and I, uh, I think we read a lot of what we do and we follow each other and we compare and share and all that stuff. So I think there's even a social nature of following somebody on Twitter. You know, how many at a conference like this? How many people do you you know? have followers do you have on Twitter that you've never met in real life and you pass each other, you know, in the hallway and you don't even realize that, oh, you follow each other because they don't look like their Twitter picture or something like that. Mm. So I, I think the nature of relationships is going to be a bit asynchronous when it comes to learning. I think it's going to be a little bit, um, you know, more maybe follower and, you know, following based. But I, I don't think ever it's going to replace face-to-face conversations. And, you know, I, I think kids will go to school but, I mean, even when I was in my high school class, how I set my class up, my kids would learn individually personalized experiences while I was in the classroom. So I wasn't, I wasn't the keeper of the knowledge. I was kind of their, you know, they say God on the side. So my kids were moving through their curriculum self-based, self-directed, and if they struggled or they needed anything... I was there. And that could even be, you know, with my kids who were ready for college. I taught sophomores, but I had kids that were ready to go to college. I had kids that were smarter than me at some things. And when I got to those kids who didn't really need my teaching help, I asked them how their day was, how their sports were, how their parents are, and I built that relationship. So Hmm. I don't think relationships will ever be replaced. I think how we build relationships, how we facilitate relationships, I think that's going to change a little bit. But there's always going to be social relationships because I think that's just human nature is we love that, you know, uh, we, we love that aspect of, you know, being together. You know, yeah. what, what, did, what did Mark Twain say? The, the telephone was invented because we're afraid to be together, but we're afraid to be alone, you know? so <laughs> That's very well. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's the same thing here. I don't think we're ever going to be totally unconnected, but I think when it comes to knowledge and learning and applying that knowledge, we don't have to all meet face-to-face and sit down and all move at the same pace anymore. Yeah, I know, I read, I know Clive Thompson of Wired Magazine speaks on this idea of this, these affinity spaces where, you know, I've, I've experienced several times you walk into a room at a conference, especially something like HackEd, and you Twitter know half the room before they even <laughs> open their mouths, you know, from their blogs, from their posts, from their chats, like what they're going to talk about. And so that, that idea of connectivity is definitely, you know, changing rapidly. Yeah. And, and I think of like how much information I've gotten just off of following people through Twitter without even going to conferences. Exactly. And you almost feel like you have a relationship with them. Like you know them and, oh man, you know, you care about them. You want them to be successful and yeah. stuff like that. And, and I'll even give, give a, a, another example you know, here at ISTE, I have maybe three sessions selected that I want to attend, and that's because I, I feel like I don't have basic knowledge on that topic, so I want to go get more basic knowledge. Mm-hmm. But most of my conference is going to be stalking experts and having conversations with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have a list of people who I admire who are doing great things. You know, I, like I say, just had Mike, and, you know, this is Mike and I have 
probably you know been familiar for two years we've never met and this is the first time that we've ever actually met face to face and so to sit down and just talk shop with somebody who's doing the same thing I am you know for me this is about you know there's so much talent in one place people I've never met and I've only followed and admired their work I'm now going to seek them out yeah and and, and at a conference like ISTE people are very willing to give the crazy person a half hour 10 minutes or 15 minutes of their time you know just like to... right now <laughs> uh, I think that it's a misnomer to think that business people understand this or have more experience in this than educators. Um, frankly, there was a, a study that uh, came out about a year ago where they tried to look at all of the empirical papers on gamification, like where you know someone had actually done real data collection on a gamification example. And I think it was something like either two-thirds or three-fourths of all the examples they could find were actually in education. Broadly speaking, so that includes corporate learning and development and training, but they were more education-oriented than marketing-oriented or management-oriented. Now, um, there's a lot that's going on in business. Um, it's just mostly anecdotal. So I think that the challenge is um, really the same in both contexts, uh, and that's why in the, the course that I wrote and, and that I did in the book and so forth, um, I don't have a separate unit that's just on gamification for learning or for education because it's the same basic principles. Um, so what's happening just generally then, to answer your question, is there was a tremendous amount of hype about gamification three or four years ago. Uh, lots of people focused predominantly on marketing, uh, who would come out and say, this is great, your customers will love you, they'll get addicted, just like they're addicted to Angry Birds and Candy Crush. And a bunch of businesses um, bought into that, said, oh, this is cool, um, and then had pretty um, limited success. Uh, because what they found is that if you think gamification is a magic potion, that there's this kind of fun pixie dust that you can sprinkle onto something and people will get addicted, you might get some initial engagement. Uh, people might uh, find it novel, they might find it interesting. Some people will get really into it. Uh, but overall, most people, that will fade out. If there's no real value in what you're doing, if you're not selling a service or a product that people want, just putting a game layer and giving them some points and some badges isn't going to suddenly transform it into something exciting. So right now we're in this period of disillusionment. And if you look at the research reports from the, uh, the technology research firms like the Gartner Group, they talk about this thing called the trough of disillusionment. And they say now is the point where everyone is saying gamification is dead, it doesn't work, it's gone. The reality is actually quite different. Um, those initial people who are doing it at a very superficial level are going away. Uh, but there's actually more adoption than ever. I get calls all the time from companies, including very big, substantial companies, saying, we want to understand this, we believe in this, we're trying this here, we're trying this internally, we're trying it externally. Um, but there's still a tremendous lack of understanding. Um, so I would say businesses are trying to figure this out just as much as educators are. And so when you do get to talk to these companies and they want to know more, yeah. what, what advice do you give them? What is your, what is your message to them? A bunch of things. So one thing I say is you need to have a thoughtful process. Uh, and you don't have to use a specific process that doesn't be that formal. Uh, but if you just go in and say, okay, I've got this uh, problem. Uh, I want to get more customers engaged with my product on my website. Or I have this group of employees and I want to uh, train them on something or I want to improve their performance. So how do I gamify it? How do I make it fun? That's the wrong approach. Um, because what you need to do is step back and say, well, first of all, what's my real business goal? 
uh, what's the actual goal I'm trying to serve, what are the activities that that involves, and then what do I know about the players, the people involved? Um, and then start to think more broadly, what are the different ways that I can use either game mechanics, either elements for games, or just more broadly game thinking? So you don't necessarily have to use a leaderboard or a leveling system to gamify something. Um, it's really a, an attitude, an approach to making things more game-like. So what I say is typically step back um, and map this out and try and think through the possibilities and then get to the point where you can test some things. Um, because the worst approach is to just go and deploy a whole system and, and not get any data about what really works. So these are kind of obvious things, but you'd be surprised how many companies miss them. And I think that speaks then perfectly to education because I use gamification all the time. And when I designed it, one thing I wanted to do was model what makes, I think, a video game great for kids is this idea that they have choice, um, they have self-direction. And you know, something I always say is, you know, when you plug in, the video game doesn't know if you're gay or straight, black and white, right? The video game is inherently fair. And I think there's something beautiful about that. But then I also like to say that the video game trusts kids to play. You know, a, a lot of times, we won't even trust a kid to go to the bathroom, I always say, but the game trusts them to save the world. And so I have this, this same thought when I think about the STEM movement and even maker spaces is it's very fad-driven. You know, once we have our, our, you know, our technology and our engineering and our math, you know, we're going to want somebody to write a poem. We're going to want somebody to make a movie. And so what I think at the core of gamification is, and maybe you can you know, correct me if I'm wrong or give me your opinion, I think it's just a good model uh, and same thing with Makerspace, it's just a good model for student-centered learning. Choice and direction and agency and ownership on what they're doing. And so, is that what you're finding when you think about the principles? Is that kind of where your mindset is too, is about? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, so, gamification isn't just one thing. Right. Um, and that's very important to remember. Um, and, and again, as I said, it, you can uh, use this approach, this way of thinking you're talking about. So, you know, choice is really important, autonomy. Um, willingness to experiment and, and fail is a, is a big one where that's a great thing that games do. You know, you, you try and jump and you land in the lava and then you get another do life and you do it again a different way and it's, it's puzzle solving and it creates that environment that makes you want to solve the puzzle and want to keep trying. And obviously that's exactly what we want to do in education, um, but all of the pressures are you know, to take that out to sort of say, you know, do, you know, do this and then we'll grade you and if you fail, you fail and, and so forth. Um, I mean, a good teachers just intuitively know the right way to do things, um, and sometimes they're using these approaches without ever calling them gamification, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, one thing that gamification can do is give us a model. We can say, all right, let's look at games that are successful and games that are great and deconstruct it. And then just take those principles. Like, don't try to make the class look like a game at all. Just, just take those ideas and think, what can I do in my environment that does well what the games do well? But we, we can also do things that are you know, much more directly game-like. Um, there is value in some circumstances, if it's done right, about using the point systems and using the leveling systems of <laughs> narrative structures and quests and so forth. Um, there is some value in creating an immersive, somewhat game-like experience, if that's what you want to do and that makes sense with your environment. So I think of it as a palette. I mean, I, I just you know, wrote a, um, co-wrote a, a supplemental book to my gamification book called The Gamification Toolkit. Which is about gamification, you know, game elements specifically, but it really talks about you know, this is a menu of techniques and options and principles, 
And um, I think it just creates a sense of possibility of what you can do. Um, and I think that's particularly powerful, um, you know, both in education and in business. Are, are you finding any one particular game element or mechanic to be stronger than the others? No, no, and that's the wrong way to look at it. Okay. That's, again, if you start with the assumption that there's a right way to do it in the abstract, it's not going to match up with your specific set of needs. And your specific set of needs is partly you, so you as the, as the teacher, which is also when I talk to businesses, you know, who's doing this? Is this the marketing group that's running this? Is this the IT group? Is it, you know, is this for something that's employee facing or customer facing? What's the culture of your company? The, the right solution for a very um, exotic, fun-loving tech company is not necessarily going to be the right solution for a 200-year-old bank. Uh, both of them can use gamification, by the way. The, the big thing I get from businesses is saying, oh, you know, is this you know, not serious enough? We're a very traditional company. And gamification works for them just as well as anyone else. You just skin it differently. You just describe it differently. Um, but that's one piece is, who are you that's doing this? And what's your context? And the other piece is, um, who are the players? Um, which is, you know, who are the kids in an educational context or the learners versus who are the, you know, the customers or the employees in a business context? What do you know about them? It is impossible to pick one solution that is right on all those dimensions forever. So I know you're a busy man, and uh, I just wanted to thank you for taking just a few minutes to talk to me. It's, it's fascinating. I definitely yeah. learned a, a thing or two. Absolutely. And as I said, you know, my word to everyone is uh, don't be afraid to try. And don't think that you need any particular kind of expertise or to do it in any particular way. Um, you can. There's lots of great examples out there that you can learn from and, and model on. Um, but, uh, you know, really, the, a lot of the examples that I've seen that are most successful in gamification are not someone who had any formal training or spent years and years on it, uh, but it's someone who built something that was true to their needs um, and uh, was able to listen, was able to iterate, to get feedback and to get data um, from their players. Um, so I think that's really all someone needs to do. I mean, there's various places you can go, like my course and my book and stuff for ideas and help, but I'm perfectly fine if you don't do that. <laughs> Um, the best thing is, is to go out and try. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. ISTE is a marathon. Mind-blowing conversations around every corner. Perspectives on learning environments never considered. Within the world of gamification, Uma Ludens and the free, spontaneous, problem-solving, child-driven learning can be staunchly defended. Late night in a deserted conference room, Marianne Maelstrom walks us through her concept of the sacred space of gaming. So the sacred space of gaming is actually uh, comes from my frustration of uh, how I see teachers constantly appropriate or colonate kids' spaces um, that are really successful for kids and bring them into school uh, with, with good intentions, I think, because they want to make school more engaging for students. So they think if we bring this game that the kids really love into school, um, school will be more successful for the kids and what they don't understand is that the game is really successful on, all on its own and full of really rich learning if teachers would just stop and be willing to depart and look at the, that space and the learning that is happening in, within the play and I think we have a real blind spot um, to that and I think we have a real disrespect for kids and I I believe as teachers it's really hard for us to imagine that anything has 
educational or learning value unless we say it does. So this trend to co-op a game that the kids love and bring it into school with all the best intentions to make it fun, but then they overlay school as we've always done it. They they decide what the lesson is. They decide what the kids are going to learn. They decide if it has value. And the irony is that a lot of the time they're really dumbing down the experience for the kids because if the teacher's creating the experience, you're only going to get the experience that the teacher understands. When the kids may be far more adept and doing things far more complex, and uh, so there's a real disconnect there. And I think it's tampering with sacred ground. That's their game. It's their space. And um, I I feel pretty strongly about that. Uh, yeah. I mean, in our first, I, I think for me, for me, the awakening is sort of like realizing that a game is an affinity space as well. There's learning happening all around the game, that there are, it has this kind of culture that, however you define culture, but there's like cultural fans and wheels that are connecting at different points. And as I observe some third graders playing Minecraft, at one point I tried to lean over and talk to a kid about, you know, what he was doing, and I think I was being more of a teacher than, than you know, someone just sitting at the side. And he looked at me, grabbed the iPad, held it to his chest, and, like, literally glared at me. He said, I know how to play Minecraft. Like, obviously, like, you know, this is my culture, not, not yours. And so I felt like an invader into the space itself. You have a couple of interesting projects that you... Um, co-presented last night with someone, um, what was her name that you presented with last night? Uh, Bron Stuckey. And um, I thought it was a great sort of example of how Minecraft can be used in a couple of different ways. And it doesn't have to be Minecraft we're talking about, but in this particular example, Minecraft used as a leverage for content and Minecraft um, used as a total creative space where what will kids do when they go in here. Can you talk through um, those two? Yeah, so my job at the conference was to give teachers uh, coming to my session an example of the array of kinds of um, ex uh, Minecraft experiences my kids have at our school. And we do the whole gamut. And so I wanted to make sure they got to experience everything from what a constructed lesson looks like. So I showed them an example of um, some real estate commercials we made. We had the kids build the house, study real estate commercial commercials, and produce them. Our two big curricular goals were 3D building in a 3D space, mm -hmm. and, and also to understand the media that they consume all the time, and to take a more critical look by pulling it apart and creating it themselves. Um, so it was pretty basic, but when I created that particular lesson for the kids, I had a really good understanding of the game, and so uh, even though I was overlaying my curricular goals, I try to be respectful of the game and what kids like to do in the game and find a fit between our curricular goals and what the platform had to offer. And when it's a good fit, you use it. You always try to find the right tool for the right job. So I... I often get people who, who think I never um, set any curriculum for the kids, that I'm just free-range and let them play all the time, but that's really not true. It, for me, it's about understanding the game and respecting it. And in its pure form, uh, in its best form, is when I think as teachers we can enter that space uh, respecting kids' expertise, 
and become co-learners with those kids, meaning that as a teacher we bring our own expertise about learning goals and we have, we're older, we have some wisdom, we know where we want the kids to uh, progress in life and, and they need that, but they know the game. So if we uh, make a partnership, some really interesting things can happen. And what happened at our school was one of my uh, colleagues came through the lab several times and saw a project that I was working on where the, the um, conversations were really deep and robust. And I get that a lot from people who come through the labs, like, what are you talking about? Because they can see that it's not just engagement, but the, the whole thought process and what kids are thinking about and discussing uh, are really prof can sometimes be really profound. And as uh, one person once said, it's, it's really not about the game in your class, is it? You know, it's so much more. She saw that. She came to me and she said, I want that in my class. How do I get that in my class? Tell me how to get that in my class. And I said, I can't tell you. You have to go ask your kids. And that was really puzzling for her at first, but I worked with her and uh, talked to her about how to become um, a learning partner with her kids. And we pulled out some of her curricular goals, which in fifth grade was understanding the formation of the American, our, 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 our American uh, Republic. And um, she went back to the kids and said, I want to do this, I want to experiment with this in Minecraft. And they came up with the idea of, of playing out different forms of government. And so they really led her through the process. She talked about what the goals were. They talked about uh, how to do that in the game. And together they worked that out and figured it out together. And what happened to the teacher was she would come down to me. I'll never forget the first day. She was like, she just couldn't believe that the kids actually were talking about her lesson after it was finished. And she said that has never happened in her entire career. And she's a really good teacher. Mm. And she wanted more. And every day she would come down and talk to me about these things that she was discovering. Like I had, I, I had never, see, it, for her it was new, you know. And she's like, you won't believe what the kids have done. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I actually would, but this is your journey. And it was her self-discovery. And uh, she, it, it literally changed the way she, she thought about pedagogy, her own practice and teaching. And uh, she's done that for two years now, and it's, it's changed uh, the way she approaches teaching in all of her, her subjects. Mm. So... To spell it out explicitly what some of those things are that are happening in that game. And, I mean, I kind of have a list that I keep, but, I, you know, I know that, like, there's a lot of agency of learning where the kids are taking, you know, th th they are in the growth mindset. They understand that, like, to get from here to here, I have to do all of these things myself. There's, there's a lot of that kind of hacker mentality of trial and error, trial and error, and then asking for help right and left so that the collaborative model is just sort of happening at a grassroots level. Um, what do you think that people are missing? Like, what are they not getting about all of this gaming experience happening? I think just exactly what you were saying, that it really is about choice. And the one thing kids have not had in our school system is agency and choice. And yet that's so central to all of us learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can go through the motions if we believe somebody else is going to make us do do that. And we, and if you're good at playing school, you can do it pretty well. But that, that doesn't even come close to when you choose to dig into something deeply on your own. 
And I think for teachers, it's about giving up the need to be in control of that choice. And that's, um, it's not that I, I don't, I think, it's not that teachers don't want to. I just think that it's, we're so conditioned that we have to be in charge, we have to know what's coming next, that's our job. And so to go into a classroom and to say to your students who are in fifth grade, I'm not really sure how this is going to turn out, but I want to try this, Mm. or to give your kids the power to try something and and be perfectly willing to fail or go wherever it goes is a very scary thing for a teacher. And yet once you do it, Mm -hmm. the rewards are so profound, as happened with my colleague. You can't go back. Yeah, I mean, we're so addicted to these predictable learning outcomes and, you know, to kind of package everything into these nice boxes, I guess we call lesson plans, that will produce this particular kind of knowledge. But letting kids go in this affinity space and and seeing that that happen, I've only had a couple of small experiences with this, but I, I definitely get the gist of what you're saying there. So... The dream lab, I know we have like um, the mind lab that we've been talking about that Matt Richards is running, and I know he has like mind class going over there where kids are um, designing across space and time with other kids around the world and then coming together for synchronous you know, interactions, but um, they're designing their own challenges, they're going after their own objectives with minimal adult, I don't even want to call it supervision, but with minimal adult design. Um, what do you see as the dream kind of learning or lab experience? Like, where could this possibly go? Well, I think it's the lab experience that's going to open this up and bust this out of the constraints of school. I mean, um, it's the bridge, really, between the, the, the learning the kids are doing on their own, outside of school anyway, uh, that people just really aren't paying much attention to, mm-hmm. and kind of giving them a legitimate place to come together in space with other kids in in physical spaces, and uh, you know I recently exper- experienced that when we did our own hackathon for mini hackathon for middle schoolers and saw when we stepped back out of that teacher role and just gave them the space and we only stepped in when they needed that mentorship. Mm-hmm. It was so magical. So um, I think for me the perfect lab would be a place that continually offered kids that space uh, during uh, the day, the weekend, during vacation, maybe if school's engaged, um, and then flipping that and having um, a space for teachers to come in and also experience that kind of learning in the same way. I think um, Gary uh, Steger and Sylvia Martinez are playing with that with their constructive learning camps. um, And I'm really interested in what's happening in New Zealand with the Mind Labs and what Matt Richards, I've been talking to him most directly, but I know that those are starting to spring up. The one in Auckland was really um, successful. And the um, makerspace that they're creating for the teachers is actually connected to a university accreditation. So you've kind of got the best of both worlds. Mm. The interesting thing that uh, I've been having a lot of conversations around is where do the where does the learning fit with the students and the teachers? And right now, the the model is kids 
in one space and teachers in another. And I'm not sure that that's not right, especially being here at ISTE and kind of watching what's been unfolding in the Microsoft labs where they've been bringing teachers in and trying to make a safe space for teachers to learn Minecraft the way that teachers like to learn, not mm. the way that kids like to learn. In my in my ideal world would be a space where adults and kids were learning those things together. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how that is all going to uh, come together, but that would be my ultimate goal is, is to really go to that community uh, makerspace, hackerspace, jam space model. Is this a react? I mean, I know we had no child left behind in school budgets and everything. Things got stripped down to a point where even running an arts program or any kind of creative program within a school has become an extreme challenge. Like, like how do you keep those things alive? Is this all in reaction to that? Um, why do you think now all this stuff is happening? I'm not sure because I worked in a uh, independent school, and uh, which would, traditionally was very progressive, and I've seen my own that that school move more towards a traditional line. And other people in the independent school has com have commented on the same, including the former head of the NAIS, has you know talked about this this trend that you know we have. Um, all the freedom in independent schools, and we still <laughs> move towards the rigor um, because that's the model we know. And I, I personally think it's because there's so much change in the world with all of the um, technology and and the, everything's changing so quickly that I think that that's a human uh, reaction or human nature to sometimes go back to what you know and hold on a little tighter because it's but you know, mm -hmm. and all that change is, is scary. That's one hypothesis I've had, but it is peculiar to see that kind of, kind of retreat into rigidness when you look at the kids and they're so agile in what they do in their learning. And um, so that's really been, uh, my blog is called Follow the Learning, and that's always been kind of my philosophy. You. If we're going to figure this out, we've got to bring the kids in the conversation. We've got to look at how they're learning natively in the space and let that inform what we do. And we've got to stop, you know, taking things that we observe that they think are cool and trying to um, meld that back into school, which is where this conversation all started, the yeah. sacred space. Some conversations at ISTE never quite happened. So back in Bogota, early one Saturday morning, Steve Isaacs and I met over Google Hangouts. Steve has the unique perspective of teaching game design in middle school, where design thinking guides students toward empathy for the player of the game. So hi, my name is Steve Isaacs, as Chris mentioned. Uh, I teach game design and development in a middle school in uh, Baskin Ridge, New Jersey, which uh, is pretty awesome. and. One of those things that whenever somebody asks what I do and I tell them that, I always get, you know, the same reaction like, whoa, you know, in a middle school? And then their first question is, of course, oh, is it a private school? And it, it's not, it's a public school. So it's, um, I think it, you know, opens some people's eyes to what's what's possible. And um, to give you just a brief, you know, uh, kind of intro to my journey there, uh, I actually started as a special education teacher, um, happened to be in a science and technology magnet school, 
Uh, and there, I was able to capitalize on the fact that despite being a science and technology magnet school, there were points where it seemed like the technology was being underutilized. And I was very excited to take advantage of using technology with my students, um, which was kind of interesting because quite honestly, my students were not, I'm sure, placed in that school because it was a science and technology magnet school, but rather because there was a room that could accommodate my self-contained class. Um, so anyway, so that was kind of my start into like really seeing what was possible with games. Uh, and while I was there, I met uh, Paul Tarantiles, who uh, he and his wife and my wife Kathy and I opened a technology uh, training center, essentially. It was a summer camp program that they had already had established but didn't have a physical space for. They used to have their camps in schools. So we were looking to open a, you know, a storefront, and we did. And the initial idea was we were going to do, um, uh, you know, computer training for adults. Um, primarily our focus was kids, though. It was going to be summer camps and after-school programs. And ultimately, we ended up also offering multiplayer gaming in the evenings. And it was uh, really exciting to see kids come together in that environment. Uh, you know, I, I know you've been reading, you know, Jim G's work, and uh, you know, he talks a lot about affinity spaces. And, and this was just a, an absolute brilliant representation of, of what's possible when you create a space for people with similar interests to come together, especially in our case, in a town where there wasn't anything to do, um, kids that were probably not necessarily going to find each other or, you know, or, or have, you know, and some of them weren't even that social per se, but this provided that for them for sure. Um, to go a little further with our, our center, we offered a lot of, you know, I think we were doing game-based learning activities before we had a term game-based learning. Um, we had a lot of programs that, you know, it, it seemed like a natural fit to bring kids' interest in games, parents' interests in them learning about technology, bringing them together to kind of, you know, make everybody happy in a sense at that point, but, um, but really to, to, to make the, the activities and the camps engaging for kids. And uh, we did, you know, we did a camp on um, ancient civilizations and, you know, used the game Age of Empires and that and did all sorts of neat things like that. And, and also a lot of creative constructivist activities um, or constructionist, I should even say, where kids were creating websites um, and ultimately, we started offering game design classes there um, using programs like Game Maker and RPG Maker and, uh, and things like that. And that was like, you know, way back. And it was really neat to see the kids, you know, uh, embrace the creating of their own games and advance, you know, in that, in that way. So anyway, so as I was there, I also knew I wanted to now get more into teaching technology. So I was able to to get hired at the local middle school, which is where I am now, William Ammon Middle School. And I was essentially hired, I think, you know, because of the creative things we were doing at Liberty Corner Computing, but it was still a somewhat traditional program. Although, you know, we have a really amazing elective program at our school where, you know, the kids in the eighth grade electives have opportunities like robotics and all sorts of art classes and, and foods and engineering and things. So I, you know, I started teaching a computer application course as well as some programming classes. And, and you know, games got kind of filtered into the programming because it was a natural fit to say, okay, create a Space Invaders-like game in Visual Basic, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, but 
what started to happen too is we offered an after school game design and development club and that was fantastic um and that was you know and it's funny whenever you talk to people and they tell their story about game-based learning i think it's often starts with an easy point of entry like after school um later i i was teaching the gifted and talented seventh grade course and it was another opportunity to say "Ooh, you know i had a lot of flexibility with the curriculum so i brought in a a a game design unit where kids created a board game and then a, a video game and you know again it was uh it was a small group of kids being exposed to it but it was a way to bring that into the curriculum and then finally you know my talking you know a number of times with my supervisor who fortunately was a gamer um i suggested and asked if we could bring in a full semester eighth grade elective um course in game design and development and he was supportive and fortunately my principal uh, karen hudak was also supportive which uh i was very pleased you know i i kind of thought i was going to have a little bit of a uphill battle um and so we offered the course and you know immediately it started filling up all of my available teaching periods for the eighth grade elective um and you know so that was great and then um just to to kind of cap off this part of the story um, one of the big things we noticed was that, uh, you know, it was mostly boys signing up for the class. I mean, the kids, there was a, like a, I gave about a, we had a presentation for all seventh graders where all the elective teachers talked for about two minutes about the courses they're offering. Um, and then after that, the kids basically just look at the course catalog and select what they want to take for eighth grade. So it was predominantly boys and that was concerning to me. And you know, I was doing some research, reading, you know, a lot of um, people like Caitlin Kelleher, who did her um, doctoral research on the importance of bringing girls into um, computer science and STEM-related areas. Like, middle school is the sweet spot. If you don't get them then, you know, they're not going to kind of come around typically in high school and all of a sudden find this interest. So then uh, our seventh grade cycle course, which is a six-week cycle, was a pretty traditional course. We did a cool project that was still just using spreadsheets and and um, PowerPoint or websites and things like that. And I asked to switch that over to uh, a game design and digital storytelling class. And that's what we did. And the beauty there is that that is a course that every seventh grader takes. So now we finally got to this point where the kids had a context for whether or not they were interested to sign up for this eighth grade course. So, and also in the spirit of scaling the curriculum, I mean, my goal ultimately would be to see things starting in early elementary school and going through high school for kids that are interested. So that was successful. And, uh, you know, now I would say we had a, a significant increase in, in female participation in the course and that's continued. So that's a, that's a, the, the, <laughs> the, the short and long story of how I got where I am. Cool. No, and you touched on some, um, I think, some pretty fascinating elements. This this bridging over from special education mm -hmm. uh, to get talented. I'm thinking of um, MSU where their their tech integration or, or their ed tech program bridges a lot from their special ed as well. Oh yeah. And I, I'm wondering if you could go into more specifics there about how offering some of these. You know, you mentioned James Paul G as well, um, and I know in his 34 points of learning, he he definitely mentions this idea of um, the affinity space of having others to work with this time to work things out on your own to work from your own mm -hmm. creations and like in, in a gaming in a game design environment how does that incorporate 
all of those elements? Like, like how does it give a kid um, a chance to design their own learning or to learn in a way that they, they wouldn't get in the normal class? And um, I'm thinking of a, a former interview we had with Matt Richards, who um, runs the Mind Lab in Wellington, New Zealand, and he talked about how in Mind Class or in a lot of their projects, the kids will find these affinity spaces. They'll yep. find other kids around the world who are working on these same things. Kind of this like idea of Minecraft where there's all this learning that happens around the game. In fact, you know, people have learned how to read by, you know, learning how to play Minecraft. Kids will just go after the wikis and yep. um, all of that kind of contextualizations and meaning and motivation in their reading. I'm right. kind of talking all over the place, but recently yeah, no, there was an article here where um, some 60-year-old palenqueros, this this one very Afro-Colombian descent uh, part of the country here, where they learned how to read in the age of 60. They didn't know how to learn how to read and write, and they learned how to read by designing this cookbook of all their local recipes. And because it's so contextualized, it's so visual, it's all right there. Uh, I think there was this incredible bridge yeah. of all this kind of multimodal learning and motivation around there their literacy development. So how does gaming or how does game design um, incorporate a lot of those elements of learning? Yeah, that's an, an awesome question um, because <clears throat> it gets to the heart of, of everything I believe so strongly. And um, one is that uh, my goal or, you know, my, the, the learning space I'm, I'm looking to, to develop and, and, and uh, nurture is, um, is one where kids have a lot of choice in their learning pathways and also that it's, you know, I see my classroom or learning space as more of a studio-like environment. Um, you know, in the real world, uh, you know, people don't all do the same thing and get, the, you know, to the same product and whatever. Um, people find their specialization, right, and their niche and their interest. Uh, what's great about game design and the game design industry is there are so many different roles people can play. So, you know, everybody, you know, gets a, a certain taste of the whole design experience. But beyond that, in, um, you know, uh, collaborative teamwork uh, and creating design, you know, game design teams is a huge part of the class. And with different products that we use, it, it plays out a little differently. Um, like Game Maker, for example, the kids create a game in Game Maker. Now, the limiting factor in Game Maker right now is that there's not a real <clears throat> collaborative uh, opportunity for kids to work on different computers and build the same, you know, product, unfortunately. What they can do, though, is, um, is you know, a kid could work on the, the graphics and, and hand them over to the team to put into the game. Kids could work on the audio engineering side and pass that over, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so um, for that project, you know, typically you get these teams that, um, are either, you know, that are going to, you know, break those roles up. And, and it's really neat to see that a kid joins the class thinking they want to make games and then starts working on the graphics of a game and realizes that their interest really lies and their, and even their, their talent might lie in creating animated graphics or pixel-based graphics. And, and they really are drawn to and, and can continue that. And for me, there is nothing, you know, I, I can, the, the expectations of the class can adapt to that. And if that's a kid's interest and role, that's what they should be working on in a class like this, you know, um, and getting that regardless, they're getting the collaborative experience and all of those, you know, 21st century skills and, and such, but in a very authentic, you know, environment. And then you take a game like Minecraft and it's truly amazing. 
I, lately, I've been considering Minecraft to be the Google Docs of game design tools. You know, <laughs> it's the it's the first tool that I've found that I could have ten kids on a team working together on the same project at the same time, and and the beauty of Minecraft is if you you know I, I'm sure you've seen this. I'm not so you know I'm not having to really have kids you know that are going to be sitting on the sidelines or or letting the other kids do the, the bulk of the work everybody once they find their role within that um is motivated and excited to work so if if your role becomes i'm going to build the tower that's going to you know be the defense for this side you know you you could work on that you know with others or independently but in the context of the group and and it's an amazing thing to see you know um, so there's so I, I think I'm hitting on a lot of what you said with your question. And the other thing, which is neat, is you had mentioned the idea of um, people working, you know, globally and such. Um, I'd like to tap into that even more. But what I have found, and I've made very clear to my kids that it's okay, is if they're working on a game that they're creating in Minecraft, I have no problem with the kid that's not even in my class that they're friends with that wants to get involved to work in their game and build it. I mean, to me, that's awesome, right? And so I remember one game kids were creating, it was like a zombie wave type game, and, and they ended up with this incredibly crafted ship that was just one of the, like, bases. And I come to find out it was a kid that wasn't even in the class that, that built that whole part of their game. You know, I mean, that's awesome. Um, and then on another kind of note around the, the global potential, not as much with you know, with them working together on these projects. But um, I have started to bring in a lot of experts um, through, you know, what, what, you, what I hope more teachers start to realize is that experts in the field are more than happy to take 15 minutes, a half hour out of their day now that we have the technology to bring them in through Skype and, and chat. Um, you know, we had uh, Caro Pierce-Wilson um, uh, Williams uh, from the University of, of Madison come in and join us, uh, which was awesome. She she uh, created a game for her, her doctorate using Little Big Planet 3. And that was one of the, the tools that the kids were, were allowed to use. So it was really neat for them to see somebody talk about their experience with that. Um, we've had uh, uh, Mike Watanabe <laughs> join us. He's the uh, creative director and the voice of Tim uh, from Brain Pop, and the kids got quite a kick out of of having him join us, and um, you know other people. And and this year coming, I'm excited because uh, uh, you know I kind of hunted down John and Brenda Romero at uh, at uh, GLS, and they're John Romero's the uh, founder of ID Software, and you know creator of Quake and Doom, and and Brenda has a wonderful resume of game design as well. And they were both speaking, and and they were perfectly willing to join my class, you know, this coming year to talk. And I mean, so you bring in the, you know, somebody with a name that some of these kids are even going to know to chat with them about game design. And, and that opens up a whole lot too. So the collaboration with professionals, um, even going a step further, I'd love to get sort of some mentor type situations going, especially for the kids that really earn that right to have <laughs> you know, somebody, you know, top notch, spend some time with them, I think would be pretty awesome. Yeah, at the conference, I was talking to Mike Matera, and um, wow. one of the things we're, we're going to try to get designed um, this coming fall is to connect a couple of fifth grade classes where 
they are doing research on a Google Doc, you call it Minecraft, the Google Doc of, of game design, and they're also going to be designing simulations together in, in Minecraft. So awesome. they'll go back and forth between the two, you know, the, the two contexts of designing the game or designing the, the simulation and at the same time researching together and then having that kind of asynchronous, synchronous time yeah. bouncing back as well. Um, you mentioned this, you know, design of games. And we were talking earlier before we started recording about um, how I had picked up Ingress at the conference and then I've been playing it around different cities that I've gone to and learning about like one of the big surprises to me and kind of comparing outcomes to, to output. Like you have kind of the expected, you look at the mechanics of the game and you think this is what it's going to be about, but then you end up learning all these other things. And for me, it's been like learning how others play the game. Um, watching their patterns of behavior within the game and kind of learning that empathy for how the other player plays. And I guess that's kind of one of the basis of just playing games as humans in general. But in your teaching of game design, how do you address that part? Does it just happen naturally or do you really kind of unpack what empathy for the user is? Gosh, that that's a huge part. So it's funny. I, you know, I got to say, you, you, you got some great questions because each of them lead like... <laughs> I've been reading. <laughs> things I'd love to talk about. Um, so, you know, one of my, um, I've been known to, uh, to, to that the, my favorite word in the English language is iterative, um, you know, especially in the context of iterative design. And that is a huge um, learning outcome in my class is that kids engage in that process. So that involves a lot of, you know, the, the peer testing aspect. Um, and it is, so I have the kids go through a few, waves of peer testing. So at one wave, they, you know, they play a number of each of kids games and they kind of write a, a you know, a written evaluation with feedback and, and very specific, um, concrete suggestions for the designer. And then the kids go back and, and work on their game from there. But probably my, one of my favorite activities in terms of, um, of that process is having the kid play another kid's game. The the designer stand behind them with their with not allowed to speak at all. <laughs> and uh, if I could tape their mouths shut, I would. Um, they, basically, the, the thing that's so neat is as for one, as a, a designer, especially in at the, like middle school age, these they want to tell you what you should be doing. And and the designer has a very uh, specific idea of how the game should be played. And it's amazing for a game designer to have to sit back and watch a player play their game uh, different than it seems obvious to the designer and different than intended and make the same maybe mistake over and over and over um, to finally get through to the designer that, you know, that, that just because they thought it was going to go this way, you know, doesn't mean a player that is in that environment is going to, to you know, adhere to that. So it's like, you know, it's kind of funny when a player thinks it's obvious that you should jump to this platform in a game or move right or whatever, and repetitively the player moves to the left and gets stuck and and seems frustrated and, and whatnot. And, you know, like I say, I mean, the designer wants so badly to uh, to, to, to give them hints, and, and I often have to tell them that, you know, it hasn't, you know, in all the times that I've gone to GameStop to buy a game, they've never package the designer with the game to come home with me and help me play their game, you know? So, you know, the, the designer has to 
become so comfortable with the fact that the player is going to play the game the way the player plays the game, and, and it's the designer's responsibility to um, understand their audience. You know, so I think that's huge. Yeah, um, you touched on a couple of things. One was kind of this uh, appropriation of the tool, how everyone's going to pick up that game and play it differently, and how good game design will will allow for those things. You know, I'm thinking when we were little. Um, before the digital gaming world, when it was just like Mattel Electronics, it didn't go yeah. very far as far as narrative creation goes. But you know, it was playing with blocks and Hot Wheels, and not just playing with those things, but it was creating these narratives around them, and that was always like a huge part of the game. And so, kind of watching kids and how they appropriate those things. So you take a Minecraft, and the narratives in creativity mode, it's totally open. It's, yeah. it's come in here and and create your own narrative to this game. And then you know, watching the kids kind of play around with that, and then you know, collaborate around those narratives. I'm thinking um, of a couple of things. One is I'm taking a class, making learning visible online, out of Project Zero, and a lot of the elements that we're studying about of this documentation of learning seem so evident in what you were just talking about in your game design. And I was wondering, how do you capture that? Do you have kids like if I design a game and I'm watching another kid play it? Do you ever have that kid like screencast or do a think aloud as they're playing to kind of capture those to reflect on later? Like, how do you um, not reiterate, but how, how do you kind of capture that process of how kids are playing games? Right. Well, yeah, like, like kind of to, to go back a little bit to what I was saying, the, you know, there are two kind of different things that the kids do. One is a reflective piece where if they're playing somebody's game, there are definite guidelines for how they should report back that feedback because it has to be um, helpful to the designer. So in other words, like kids are, are likely to say things like, um, this level was too easy or something, right? And I need the kids to be specific. Like in other words, what would you suggest that they add? And a lot of times what I have them do in the reflection is, you know, what did you like about the game? Um, mm -hmm. what, what could be improved and what would you add? you know, to keep it kind of simple. And then it kind of guides them to be a little bit specific in that. And then that other piece of them, when the designer has to watch the other person play, that's kind of like the think aloud in a sense. And, and you know, but again, it's, it's, it's seeing it through the player's eyes, which I think is really valuable. Um, and just to touch on one other thing that doesn't exactly answer your question, but when you're asking it, it kind of got uh, me to thinking of the importance, you know, you're talking about narrative and, and things. Um, before my kids create any game, one of the crucial elements, and again, it's an industry standard really, is to create a design document. So whatever um, tool they're using, there's a design document that accompanies that. So the storyline, you know, is, is, is thought about, and, and there I have the kids understand the con concept of backstory. Um, when kids tell a storyline, they kind of want to write to the reader what they're supposed to do in the game. And that's not the, the point of the storyline. The storyline, you know, sets a context. So these are like, you know, writing skills and things that the kids are are, are learning and being being evaluated on. And then they they come up with the character descriptions. And I talk a lot about how, like, in a TV show, you know, I always use the example of, um, of the Big Bang Theory. Um, when I asked the kids to describe Sheldon, um, they could come up with so much rich, you know, um, descriptive terms to talk about this character and, and kind of gain an understanding of how when 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 a character is developed before a show even goes on the even is filmed there's so much that goes into 
I mean, that character didn't just, you know, show up on the set one day and start being Sheldon. I mean, there was a lot that went behind that. So the kids have to really give me a good description of what each character, you know, what their physical traits are, what their personality traits are, what their um, abilities are, you know, you know, and that kind of thing, what their weaknesses might be. Um, and then level descriptions also, I have the kids, you know, think about in advance and write real descriptive level descriptions. Like in my point there always is, you know what, I want to close my eyes and after reading your description and I want to feel and, and get a sense for where I am in the game and what the game environment is, is like. And then also things like the winning, losing scenario, the scoring mechanisms and things. So there's a lot of thoughtful um, process that goes on, on that end also and then and the kids do um share and reflect on on each other's design documents as well but that's a huge part uh, and i just I, I you know the reason i really want to point it out is you know it, it it could be you could almost forget and think we're going to teach the kids these skills about how to make a game and just let them add it and there's so much more that goes into it yeah you're touching on another james paul g point that i, I found pretty fascinating was he talked about how in in good gaming there's this um the space for horizontal behaviors, explorations, uh -huh. where you try this thing out, doesn't work, you might run around and try something else out. Whereas in most learning environment, it's very linear trajectory. It's here's the teaching point, now, now go after it. You did it, you didn't do it. Where you know games usually, or good games, usually allow for all of this other exploratory behavior within yeah. the game. Is that something you address like as you're teaching kids about how to design games? Um, well, absolutely, but even well, yeah. So, I mean, we talk a lot about the the importance of the the game mechanics coming first and having the game, you know, function properly before you worry about certain aspects. So, so the gameplay, like you know, in a sense, um, I'd rather have the kids, you know, create a lot of their game with with circles and squares as their sprites rather than worrying about the graphics first and get a real solid gameplay experience in. Um, and and the and that iterative design aspect gets to what you're asking too because just in the fact that like you said about in most situations right the kids learn something they might be tested on it and then the horrible part is we evaluate them and then we move on and so if a kid this always drives me nuts so a kid gets a 73 on a test which i guess in theory could be translated to the fact that they um, have learned or retained 73% of the information or, or, or can function at 73%, right? And then we move on. So we missed, for that kid at least, 27% of the learning was just like kind of forgiven. I don't know. You know, um, with, with game design and all of these things and, and what I call even iterative grading, we can, you know, keep putting it back to the student like, okay, you know, this is great. Let me make a few suggestions and then, you know, work on it more, submit it to me again, and I'll, I'll look at it again. And then we get to a point where eventually there's sort of, I hope, you know, an agreement that the kid got to the point that, that they demonstrated and, and, you know, got a solid product or, or mastery of, of whatever those skills are rather than, um, okay, great, you know, let's move on. And, and I guess that other 27% wasn't really important, you know? Yeah, I mean, kind of connecting a couple of things. One is you mentioning our iterative grading where the kid always has a chance to kind of come back to it. Um, and I know you've also written about passion-based learning, 
Yep. And you've also been talking, I think, about kind of this idea of like the 20% time of the genius hour of giving kids a space to kind of explore and follow their passions. Yep. Um, how, how, do you, how, is, how do you see that as being a part, kind of two parts to my question, I guess. How do you see that as a part of your learning environment? And then how would you recommend like the normal classroom teacher who doesn't have maybe the small group environment um, to try to incorporate as many of these elements as possible, the iterative grading, the, the driving passion. I mean, if you're working from the motivation of a kid's passion, they're much more likely to instill their own iterative behavior. Yep, yep. yep. Both, um, you know, I mean, I think that's the, the, that's the chalice. That's what we're all chasing after is cool. that, you know, you want the kids to be in that motivational mode where they're doing it anyway, and it's way beyond you at that point. Right. Absolutely. So I kind of feel like, <clears throat> um, I've come from, well, well, for one, you know, choice is huge, right? So, and here's, here's the thing too, like, so I, you know, I feel like I, my, my role is to create learning opportunities for kids. Okay. I, I, I don't, there's some direct instruction, but if I can set the stage and the environment and give kids opportunities and choice to explore things and I can learn alongside of them, um, and, and, and allow them to learn. You had mentioned before about um, Minecraft and how kids learn with Minecraft, right? Um, mm -hmm. Kids, you know, they, Minecraft is, is such a beautiful example for so many things. Um, Minecraft does not come with an instruction manual, right? Probably the most brilliant thing about that game that happened, I don't even think on purpose. I, I mean, you know, if it did, it was brilliant either way. But, um, but so what have kids done in that? They've, they, they go to wikis, they go to YouTube videos, they create content because now once they've watched other people produce their YouTube videos and talk about things in these wikis, now they want to contribute to that community, right? That creates a learning environment that that unfortunately often happens where? Like at home, you know, and, and the kids are learning tremendous things and, and learning how to learn, right? And that's you know, I think that's our should be our goal in school is to teach kids how to learn and, and to have a love for learning. So, um, so in my you know experience, if I if I can empower them and bring in a lot of resources, you talked about the twenty percent time, and I wrote a few grants to bring in some really cool resources for kids. Now, I don't even um, pretend to know you know how to use most of them. Um, but I want to make them available to kids to empower their learning. So that 20% time idea, the way I play it out in, is that, you know, it's, it's something that the kids, if they're going to engage with, they're going to learn how to use it and then create something original with it. So for one thing, I mean, to get them started on that path, I use something, uh, and I think I originally got to give credit to Lucas Gillespie for, for this idea because um, he incorporated it in something we did together a while ago. But um, there's, I always have this uh, prod, this activity called Watch It, Build It. So <clears throat> what the kids do is, let's say they're starting out with Project Spark or or uh, Disney Infinity um, or Little Big Planet Three, which are some of the neat tools I have available for them. They would find a video or something that they want to recreate, and they would do just that and recreate something already created. Um, I have the kids do that a lot with Redstone in Minecraft, too, to kind of get a feel for how to work with Redstone. And then once they've done that, um, then they have a context, you know, that at least kind of inspires the fact that they kind of understand or they, they learned 
you know, what I might have taught them had I had a direct lesson on it, right? They didn't need me to do that. Um, and then they come up with a plan for what they want to create that's original with whatever this product might be, and then they do that. Um, so that's that's kind of how that looks a lot of times in my class. So sometimes you'll come around in my class and, yeah, everybody might be working on something different. Um, and and that's, that's great. Um, you know, you were asking how other teachers might be able to incorporate that. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's our responsibility to tap into kids' passion and, and find that interest and and, and um, nurture that, right? I think, to me, that should be one of the goals <clears throat> of all teachers. Um, you know, we've gotten to this point, you know, where kids can find information on their own, right? If, if, you know, there's a lot of people say, like, if you can Google it, why do, why do we have to memorize it, you know? And I think we're still not quite um, embracing that. Um, quite honestly, I think if, on any assessment, kids should have those tools available to them. Like if I could, in 30 seconds, in the time that I need to answer this question, find it on Google, um, if I'm sitting in an office 10 years later, that's how I'm going to do it, right? So so I think we need to move away from the being so um, consumed by the, the way content has to be taught and memorized or whatever. To, to you know how kids can be resourceful so that's one thing but in, in and another in any class because I know people do um, think well okay so in your elective environment you know I have this great wonderful perfect you know utopia for this kind of learning um, because I can allow for that um, many teachers don't feel that's where you know what their environment allows for but uh, but I do believe that everybody could allow for choice in the way kids demonstrate their understanding. So when a project comes to be, um, <laughs> really the common joke in my house is how, you know, my, my wife was teaching elementary school and some of the things, all the kids in the class have to create a brochure, right? Which is almost a template. And I don't know, I mean, like I've said, grading that brochure might be easy for a teacher, but it must be boring as heck too, right? What if um, every kid had an opportunity to, decide how they're going to teach about this endangered species, you know, and some do it in Minecraft and some do it, create a machinima, some, you know, I mean, that's where I think every teacher could allow for that. Yeah. And I'm thinking kind of like, you know, stepping from where you are, like at our school, we're talking about the seven practices of good teaching and learning designed by, you know, Wiggins, Marzano, and a lot of these guys that talk a lot about this, you know, the goal is this backwards design or this yeah. understanding by design and to start, before you actually start teaching anything to think about this application and transference, which I think is very project friendly. You know, that that's already thinking about like where you want the kids to take this knowledge, you know, once they have it and, and framing that from the beginning. But I think we get so lost in the efficiency of things. You know, everything starts with, this is what we're going to study. Here's your essential questions. Here's your rubric. So I've got the three things covered. I've got my UVD. I've got my assessment before the kids start learning. And I've got my very explicit way that they're going to be assessed. Whereas I feel like if we just backed up a little bit and take more of what I picked up from Notosh uh, at a design thinking conference was um, giving them an immersion time and then using your documentation and observations of that immersion time to be your assessment of what they know. Right. You know that way you kind of have them in a state of wonder of observation as opposed to a state of you're being measured right now. Right. You know, I think I'll have that sense of I'm being scanned, I'm being measured. And that affects the way, you know, we're motivated into things. Like if the only motivation is your rubric, 
well, there's nothing wrong with the rubric. That opens up, you know, a whole, you know, different array of the way we kind of look at learning. But I think kids get sort of attuned to that. Like, that's what school's about. Yeah, as opposed yeah. to, you know, let, let's throw them into this kind of wonder state, this divergent thinking, before they get a chance to kind of go into the material. Um, at least that's the way I think about it. Because then you've hit the three, you know, three of the big seven. You don't have to say you've even stepped away from the framework, but you've tweaked it in a sense that you're putting in the kids at the state of imagination and wonder before you know you kind of go into it. Um, wow, it's uh, been fun. Yeah. <laughs> so. What do you do from here? And like, what's your dream design of, I guess, you know, I asked the same question about Richards. Where do you see education going? If you could push it in a direction, um, what would school look like? Would there be a school? Yeah, uh, that's a good what is the dream learning environment? Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so one thing, and, and this, so, you know, yesterday at, at Games and Ed, um, I spoke on, on, on passion-driven teaching and learning, right? And the big thing, that I think is, is starting to really uh, resonate with me is, and it's funny, what, when I started getting really involved and, and connected in things, I, you know, I, I wanted to, to wear this banner of, of somebody who was gonna reform education, right? Um, I, I, I think that's, um, that's a tough goal, and I'm not sure that it's even the necessary goal per se. Um, I think, you know, and it's funny, Peggy Sheehy and I both, um, you know, touched on this um, at our, we both keynoted at Games and Ed this weekend, and, and both of us, you know, made the very important distinction that, you know, what we can and should be doing is transforming education. Um, I think transformation is, is, is a much um, easier thing to work towards than, than reform. When I think of reform, the vision I always get in my mind is this huge wrecking ball knocking down a school and, you know, then rebuilding and, and recreating from the ground up, which, which a new school, you know, could certainly do. Um, but I think our system, uh, it would systemically, it would be very challenging. And, and I think a lot of people would get frustrated before we see the impact. Um, transforming our thinking around, like I had said about kind of, well, for one, bringing our passion as learners. I mean, teachers, I think, teachers genuinely kind of go into teaching because they love learning, right? Um, if we, I mean, my goal always is to have my kids be, not, not, not that, that I mean to do this because I hope it just happens authentically and naturally, is that I want them to see that I'm passionate about learning and excited. And, and by bringing in all these new resources and things, you know, like I'm, I get lit up, you know, it, it makes things different in the classroom for me as well as for them. Um, and and looking for and opening a space for them to to find their interest and passion, I think is where education needs to go. So you know, when it comes to learning spaces, um, you know, I, I one of the slides I showed yesterday was you know the difference between what a traditional classroom looks like and what a, a like a startup or a, a a cool tech company looks like. And I would love to work you know, in this environment created by a lot of these tech companies. Um, recently I visited uh, Filament Games, their, their, um, their studio, as well as um, Shell Games. And I mean, these are places you would love to spend your days, you know? Why doesn't school look like that? You know, so, so my classroom, I mean, I'm making strides. I have, um, you know, three huge uh, LCD TVs, you know, that, blend well to what we're doing with the consoles and everything. 
Um, the next thing, the one thing I'm missing so far is, is and I always kind of half joke about it, but not, but I'm not joking is couches. Um, I think the kids need, you know, a, a learning space that's inviting and comfortable. And I don't see why schools can't look and feel like that. Um, it, it's interesting. I've been, been doing a lot of like ed camps and things. And, and I, I, I give credit to a lot of organizers because they seem to find and house these type of events in cool schools that are starting to have the right idea. So, you know, it allows us to see that it is starting to happen. Um, I don't think that, you know, bells ringing every 40 minutes in a school is necessary. Um, I would love to see there be a way that we could schedule that didn't require that. Um, one of the big things I think is really necessary and important is um, to create like academy models, like a school within a school, which is happening, you know, in some places. But, you know, to give you an example, too. So my daughter goes to the um, uh, the Votech program for half day for culinary arts, right, which I think is wonderful. She's doing something she's interested in. We still have this stigma, unfortunately, about this vocational, vo vocational technical education as not being the, the, the same rigorous or something path to, um, to whatever our goal of getting into some, you know, prestigious college or something is, or, so what happens is, unfortunately, is kids are sort of turned away from that because it's not, um, you know, viewed as, as, it's not valued as well as this traditional school environment, unfortunately. Yet I think if every kid had that experience um, in one way or another, it would be wonderful. And so it really irks me <laughs> to, to think that there's this thing that's holding kids back from these experiences. Um, our school, uh, our high school, we're, we're, we're creating a, a STEM academy um, that's going to be like that school within a school model at our high school. And I'm very excited about that. But I think there should be many more of those. I think kids should either be spending half of their day maybe in this engineering type environment or maybe within a regular school whether it be this culinary experience or something that by the time we're, we're in high school i mean nine or eight 40 minute periods that model that same thing of this content 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 you know homework 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 test 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 um i i, I think we need to move so far from that you know um i think you know so so Authentic learning experiences are what we need to start bringing in much more of. And I think we can. I think we just need to, you know, make it. I'd like to see it more as a shift than a um, complete, you know, uh, overhaul, you know, uh, you know, because yeah. we could do that. The, we, we just had a conversation with uh, Owen Lanihan, who um, talked about classroom design. And he comes into teaching from being an archaeologist where they look at space and have to, you know, that's all they have to work with to figure out and empathize with who these people were and how they behaved. So he literally talked about, you know, how we use classroom walls and everything. And uh, one of the big points he said was uh, the difference between, you know, he's like, yes, be be political in your behaviors, but also be be a politician. You know, we talked about the, right. the political act of some of these ways of teaching, but he said at the same time, you know, you're always stepping from where you are. You can't step out of the bounds of the institution. Yeah. And maybe that's part of this rebranding of vocational activities to maker spaces or yeah, other kinds exactly. of authentic learning experiences. And I think we can do that. And I think like you say, right. So when we create like a maker space type thing and, and allow kids, I mean, we have to figure out how to allow kids into those spaces without 
thinking that they're supposed to be in biology for these 40 minutes or whatever, you know, so we do have to think that through a little, um, you know, it reminds me of something a little funny too, you know, back in the sixties, they had this wonderful idea of these open learning spaces, right? Um, I taught in one of these schools and by the time I got there in the early nineties, um, they did what I think most of these things do. So they have this huge learning space, right? And then they, I guess every year the teachers, their goal is to buy more bookshelves so they could create walls to separate their learning spaces from this, this, this idealistic idea of having this open learning space. So it's rare that, so it's like one of these things. And, and you know, a lot of people say, um, you know, it's like we tried that and it didn't work, so we're not going to do it, you know? So it's like we had this idea then, which was probably wonderful if we figured out a way to do it right. And then because it didn't fit into our model, so it's like you, you create this open space, but you still put teachers in there that teach certain content areas and feel they need their 40 minutes to deliver that content. So they can't really utilize the space in the context that they understand. So they, you know, create their own walls. So, you know, I, I think it's very interesting. This wraps up part one of our session on gamification. In the next podcast, we'll continue with voices from ISTI. Remember, Journeys in Podcasting is a project based at Colegio Nueva Granada in Bogota, Colombia, begun by Natalia Leon, Chris Davis, and myself, Diego Lopez. New sessions from Tom Furby have begun to spread as well, which is awesome. Um, also remember, you can find us on Facebook, iTunes, and our videocast page. This week will be broadcasting sessions as part of the Tri-Association Conference hosted by CNG here in Bogota.